It was really reliable, and it had done a lot of good service, Miss Tucker said, sadly saluting her cube. I yeah. hope they, they refund that lady. Usually this is her... a pro-cube podcast. But... Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was about to say, I'm, uh, this is not an anti, anti-cubing stance from my point of view. This is... Um, not an- anti-cubing or anti-cube. No, no. But, but in my opinion... the action or the platonic solid. Yeah, and in my opinion, this was an unjust cubing. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to be cubing from home for the next... <laughs> <laughs> CFH. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy. I'm here with my co-host, most recent champion of the Gold Cube, Maddox. It's quite an honor and a privilege to be here as the champion of the Gold Cube. You get to have that crown on until at least the next draft. And given how much Daniel works, it could be a minute. So you might just be holding this crown for a while. I'm not happy about that. I mean, I would like to keep the crown, but I just actually really want to draft that cube again. It's such a blast to play. Now, do you always force aggro like I do? I wouldn't say I force it, but I would say I have a proclivity towards it. It's one of those things where I don't think I force it either, but I, I value I those cards picked... so much more highly than so many other people and that I end up in that deck a lot just because that's where my card evaluations are at. Absolutely. And I definitely first picked an aggressive card and was looking to be there. So, yeah, sure, I forced it. <laughs> For those of you who aren't aware, uh, this is the gold cube of a friend of our playgroup, Daniel. Been on the show a couple times before. And the uh, the notable thing about this cube is it is a gold cube. All the cards are gold. But importantly, you start the game with a Pillar of the Perrins in play, which is a five-color land for casting gold spells. Which means you can play a really interesting deck where basically you play one or two colors, but you splash all of the other colors. So you can be a mono-red deck as long as all your spells are red-white, red-black, red-blue, or red-green. And you can cast them all with that off-color Pillar of the Parents. I think I did. So there is a little bit of a challenge there. Like, I love that level one of just completely reinventing the way that you evaluate cards and navigate the draft. That's awesome. I think I did do a little bit of a step up in my drafting this time in that oh. you you have the, a problem when you do that, that especially in aggressive decks where you have a lot of cheap things. Uh, and remember, like, all your two drops are now one drop. So you can, you know, play a whole bunch of cards that are very efficient and do all kinds of complicated things on turn one. But you get into the challenge where it's really really hard to double spell because you're thinking, okay, I'm drafting red-white, and here's a card that's white-blue, and here's uh, one that's red-green. You might be able to cast them both on turn one, but you can't necessarily cast them both on turn two or three because you're relying on that same pillar to be able to cast that splash color in both. So I think I did a much better job of actually taking a bunch of uh, two drops and three drops in my colors so I could much more reliably double spell, which just made a proactive deck much better more effective you mean in your actual two colors so you were green white if i remember correctly right and you took actual selesnia gold cards as opposed to just cards that are green or white plus another color and like you said i just know i have a much higher proclivity to taking those green white cards than anyone else in our play group so they certainly what came around to me i think that's the best aggro color pair in that cube i do like green or red quite a bit i like both because when you when you cut the when you cut your whole curve down by a whole pip the green Creatures look really appealing because, again, it's all two, threes, and fours, mostly twos and threes, and the green two and three drops are just extremely well-statted. I love to read those cards. I also had some nice scalable things and some face burns, so yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of little tools to actually close out the game as well. If I can give you one last tip, maybe, for playing that cube, maybe a small level up, draft as if you're playing one or two colors, but then when you actually build your mana base, 
actually count all the pips and all the colors and just throw in basics of those colors and it pretty much just works out that might be a good good idea i like just keeping it simple and just everybody's trying to figure out the hard mana bases and i'm just like i'm done give me my basics it is nice to be like give me 12 mountains and i'm done but uh, that's all i need by the way because uh, i get a <laughs> land and play for free so i'm not even playing that many lands I, the other thing that's a little bit challenging is i don't know how to evaluate the the multicolor lands that's a whole thing like a lot of it is slow mana so i don't really want it but it really would iron out those those situations i had an ancient ziggurat which just felt great yeah, that really works with the, with their creature based deck. This is not a podcast about the gold cube, though. This is our second set review for Innistrad Crimson Val and Crimson Val Commander included as well. And what we're doing in this episode is talking about the cards from Crimson Val and Crimson Val Commander that Anthony and I are interested in adding to our respective cubes. So uh, we're going to be talking about the community response maybe next week, maybe the week after, depending on timing. So make sure you complete that survey and send in your hot takes, voice memos to mail at luckypaper.co if you want your voice to be heard, quite literally, in the community episode. But this episode is really just about the cards that we like for our own cubes with that context in place. Context. This is a new episode we're trying out for the set review, and I'm excited about it, Anthony. I feel like it helps simplify the conversation. We can just talk about the cards we like or don't like and don't have to worry about trying to contextualize everything in this much broader, complicated structure. Yeah, I mean, Cube is a weird format where the context is, it's vague, it's broad. Like, the context can be whatever you want it to be. You can put any kinds of collection, any kinds of custom rules or restrictions on the Cube. So, we, a lot of times, want to kind of try and be contextless. Uh, So, I think that just trying to hit a bunch of different contexts and talk about different Cubes and why we're looking at the set in different ways is just another way to maybe do that with a little bit more concreteness. So, we're going to start with my Bun Magic Cube. We'll start with my cube. We'll do your cube second just to keep these conversations nicely contained so the context doesn't shift in the middle of our card evaluations. I have 10 cards I have earmarked for the Bun Magic Cube. Admittedly, a couple of them I think I'm going to test in the sense that I'll do a testing session where people are allowed to play these cards if they want to, basically. And I'm not sure that some of these bottom ones are actually going to make the list. I'll make a cut for them you know, permanently. But I'm going to be willing to test them, basically, and give people access to them during our next draft. So we'll start, basically, I've got them ordered here by how excited I am about them for my cube. Working from testing, but skeptical, all the way up to, like, this is a card I expect to play for a very long time. Before I dive into the specific cards that I am going to test out in my cube, I want to talk a little bit about the context of the Bun Magic Cube. I've talked about it a lot on the show, so if you're a regular listener, you probably know a little bit about this cube, but it's my primary cube. It started out very much as a, like, vintage cube in the in the shape of the Magic Online vintage cube that I was watching people play on YouTube and really enjoyed and wanted to be a part of. And over the intervening five or six years, it has gotten further and further away from that and really now is a very lean, low-curving, high-removal format, uh, which has a lot of fixings. I play about 70-plus fixing lands at 360, which is well above the average on Cube Cobra. I really want players to be able to cast their spells. I want to let people occasionally dip into three- and four-color decks, if possible, and a really heavy support for aggro. So a lot of one-drops, a lot of two-drops, and uh, you know, mono-white, mono-red, two-color decks in the white-red-black color combinations uh, all could be very aggressive and get you dead very, very quickly. So, you know, this is a very powerful cube. I'm looking at some of the most powerful cards in the set, but I'm not just blindly playing whatever powerful cards exist. I exclude a lot of cards that would be powerful enough for my cube. I just don't like their play patterns. I don't think they make for particularly fun decisions. I've just left them out because they're not the kind of gameplay I'm trying to encourage, which is this low curving, lots of game actions, lots of decisions kind of environment. Did I explain that well enough, you think, Anthony? Perfectly. Great. Let's dive into the first card then, which is maybe a bit of a surprising one. It is by invitation only. This is the new white board wipe. It's three white white for a sorcery that says choose a number between 0 and 13. Each player sacrifices that many creatures. Now, 
given the context I just provided for my cube, I care a lot about the mana efficiency of spells. I will always run the cheapest version of an effect that I can, not just because it's powerful and you know is very likely to be better than the more expensive versions, but because I want to encourage people to multi-spell. I want to eliminate as much as I can the chances for people to lose the game with cards still in their hand. They never got a chance to cast because they didn't get enough mana. And so I like four mana board wipes and three mana board wipes and the one two mana board wipe in balance that we have access to. I play balance, toxic deluge, wrath of God, those kinds of cards. Right now, I do also include Doomscar, which is the five mana board wipe that has foretell. And by invitation only is in my list just because I want to try it out in place of Doomscar, which I think is the least appealing board wipe in my list right now. I do think Doomscar is overall going to be a lot better in the control decks, the opportunity to, you know, foretell it early and then cast it for cheap later for only three mana on a turn where you can maybe double spell, maybe also hold up a counter spell after casting it or cast it and play a Planeswalker or something makes Doomscar a little bit better. But what I'm really interested about by invitation only is that it is a board wipe that it's not a total blank in a deck with creatures in it. You can play by invitation only in a creature deck. And I honestly think that time may prove to show that this is perhaps best in a creature deck because basically what it says is if you have more creatures than your opponent, just make them destroy all theirs and keep your best ones, however many left you can possibly keep. And so the fact that it's a board wipe that perhaps a green-white deck might happily play is very interesting and appealing to me. I think the best way to talk about this card is really as a modal spell. So, I mean, it's basically a board wipe. You can just name any number, destroy all creatures. Technically, you, mention, yeah, you that- can't destroy more than 13 creatures. That's I'm going to call that flavor text and for normal situations. It definitely is in my cube. I have never seen a board even remotely close to that large in my cube, at least in the past few years. So, assuming we can sort of rule that out, it basically says either uh, it's a modal card, you either destroy all creatures or destroy a number of creatures, which is very different, I think, from a traditional board wipe because it, it has this second mode. And I think that second mode is fairly narrow because you do have to be in a fairly specific board state where both, you know, you have more creatures or you have creatures where your best creature is better than your opponent's creatures, but still adding, like you say, that second mode that is not a total blank when you're potentially ahead in the game is is potentially very powerful, especially because it is relevant at such a different point in the game. We see a lot of modal spells, if those two modes overlap a lot and are useful in the same situations, that doesn't really increase the power level of the card that much. Right. But when the modes are different in very different situations, uh, that does make it a much more impactful card. Yeah, and I've had board wipes, like traditional board wipes, in my green-white mid-range decks and occasionally brought them in against aggro and just said, maybe this will be my opening hand, maybe I'll just sandbag it and get the aggro deck who doesn't think I can afford to run a board wipe. And the fact that you now just can, you can just main deck it and it's fine. It's still not great against control decks for the most part because they are going to kill you by emptying your board completely and they're probably not going to have a threat in play until a very, very late game. And so that's not really going to be a relevant spell on your hand. Probably have to side it out there, but maybe it edges over from side in when relevant to side out when irrelevant. I'm not entirely sure. Although even in those matchups, a lot of times those control decks are playing in this cube a ton of planeswalkers. And you can definitely imagine situations where you have a couple tokens, you just sacrifice your token to destroy their one blocker, and all of a sudden you can actually meaningfully attack the planeswalkers. Yeah, it's possible. So this is the bottom of my list. This is the card I'm most skeptical of. I don't frankly expect this card to be in my cube in a year. But it's got enough interest to it that I want to try it. It's also worth noting that it has a lot of interesting weird edge cases. So obviously it makes people sacrifice stuff. So it's going to get around hexproof. It's going to get around destructible. It's going to get around those sorts of effects, which I don't have a ton of left in my cube. There was a time where I had more hexproof and indestructible and non-interactive threats. I don't really have that so much anymore. So it's not going to be as relevant in my environment. The other thing it gets around though is other more novel ways of dealing with board wipes. So you know, some decks in some environments, again, not mine specifically, will play Sacrifice Outlets like Goblin Bombardment and say, okay, if you wipe the board, at least I'm going to deal five damage to you. And because by invitation only, 
the number is not part of a target or anything. You just choose that number on resolution. Your opponent has no opportunity to respond once you have chosen that number. If you have a board where both players have some creatures, you cast by invitation only, your opponent has a goblin bombardment or some other sack outlet, they're not just going to be able to sack all their creatures and say, great, now I got some value out of it, because then you just name zero. And now nothing gets destroyed. You basically plague-winded them for five mana. Anyway, like I said, skeptical, but going to give it a shot, or at least let some of my players give it a shot and see what they think about it. All right, next up, another card I'm skeptical of but want to maybe give a try is Kessig Wolf Rider. This is one red mana for a creature human knight. It's a 1-2 with Menace. It has an activated ability. Play two and a red to exile three cards from your graveyard and create a 3-2 red wolf creature token. You know, this fills in that space of aggressive one-drops. I say aggressive one-drops. It's not particularly good aggressive body. A 1-2 is not really what you want on one mana. Does have menace, so it carries equipment pretty well, and we'll still get in for some chip damage in the early turns of the game because it's going to take them longer to get two blockers and have one blocker up for it. Uh, but then it has this late game value of being able to just you know pay three mana and turn extra cards in your graveyard into three two creature tokens. The reason I say I'm a little skeptical of this one is I do think it's pretty bad in both modes. the The mode of just being a one mana one two with menace is not aggressively statted enough to be really appealing in my cube. Uh, it's not going to do as much on turn one as I want your average aggressive red creature to be. And then late game, three mana, three cards for a 3-2. You know, compared to some big delve spells, compared to Grim Lava Mancer, compared to stuff that's going to use your graveyard as a resource in some other way, making a 3-2 is fine. But I think imagine there's a lot of board states where even that is actually not enough, right? Like if the reason you're behind is because your mid-range opponent stabilized and has their Nissa who shakes the world ticking up, making three twos, uh, even a couple of them, is not going to be enough to get you out of that situation. So I'm interested in this card. I'm always interested in aggressive one-drops that have late-game relevance, and this certainly has a lot more than your average Jackal Pup, but I'm not convinced it has quite enough to make up for the fact that it is not so appealing on turn one. I think on power level, I agree. I'm a little bit skeptical of it. I do really like seeing these alternative ways to use the graveyard as a resource. Obviously, we have things like Delve that are just kind of... Uh, really hard to balance, let's say that, where these, these cards <laughs> get extremely powerful at certain parts in the game, but also they kind of can fail when you just don't have that resource available, you just can't really do it. So I like these kinds of cards that scale up in power level in the late game when you sort of have access to this resource that a deck is maybe not otherwise taking advantage of. Similarly, you know, I really liked the creatures in uh, Kaldheim that you had to exile creatures from your graveyard as an additional cost because, again, that was yeah. an opportunity for them to add this extra cost, which was meaningful. You could sort of build around it and play around it in a meaningful way. And it just allowed them to make really mana-efficient cards that still didn't just mean the games were, you know, you were just able to dump your hand immediately. Yeah, and those cards oftentimes had a regular mana cost but could be played cheaper if you paid, if you exiled a creature in addition to casting it. Um, I'm not sure if you looked at Cobbled Lancer from this set, but that's a card that I am not going to be playing in my cube. It's that one blue mana 3-3 three, three that... You can draw a card from your graveyard with it, and you can also, but you can only cast it if you exile a creature card from your graveyard or something like that. And that card, I think, is quite interesting. And if it were in a different color, I may, might be interested in it for my own cube because one mana three threes, big game. I think I feel similarly. It's like, I, but in a blue deck in my environment, a one mana three three is just a weird thing to have. So I'm very odd. It's it's definitely something that I think a lot of cube designers are going to be interested in. That one's curious. That one maybe gets my award for uh, I least am able to evaluate the viability of this card in my own environment i also love it's just sort of a build your own centaur it's true all right that's wolf rider i think it's fine i'm gonna let people test it and again unless there's some enthusiastic wow this card is so much better than i thought or this card is amazing i'm so glad i had it 
I doubt I'll actually be able to find a cut for it to stick it in there for the long run. The next card is probably the simplest card on my list, but I think it's going to lead to maybe the most conversation. And that's just Reckless Impulse. This is the common one in a red sorcery. It says, exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn. You may play those cards. It's two mana draw two, but you know, not draw two if you're going to use them in three turns. You got to use them this turn or next turn. There's a couple of interesting comparisons for this card. One is Knight's Whisper, which is one in a black, draw two, lose two, which is a card that has been in and out of my cube a bunch. Never cut because I didn't think it was good enough to continue to see play. Just cut because it was a very much a known quantity and I wanted to test some other stuff. And I eventually always put it back in. It is currently in my cube and I don't see it getting cut anytime soon. And Reckless Impulse is, I think, very, very similar to that card. It's effectively draw two. There's a little bit of downside on both of them. In the Knight's Whisper's case, you lose some life. In Reckless Impulse's case, you give your opponent some information and you have to use those cards uh, in the next two turns. Otherwise, they go away, which is relevant. The other card we compare this to is Light Up the Stage, which is the spectacle cost. It's basically a red divination, you know, exile the top two, play them this turn or next turn, but it has a spectacle cost for a single red. That's a card that has also been in and out of my cube a lot, but it was cut because at times I didn't feel like it was good enough, and it is currently not in my cube, but it's always kind of sitting in that stack of cards that might make it back in. Except I think it's never going to make it back in now that Reckless Impulse exists, because I think Reckless Impulse does everything I wanted Light Up the Stage to do a lot better. So... Light up the stage, obviously a very high ceiling. One mana, draw two. I say draw in, in scare quotes, is excellent. There's no card in my cube that draws two cards for one mana without a bunch of hoops or complexity to it. So that mode is obviously incredible. The three mana mode, on the other hand, is really rough. Uh, a three mana draw two in my environment is not anywhere near efficient enough. You can't afford to take turn three off and just draw two cards and not affect the board and not do anything. So really light up the stage is unplayable in a control deck and in an aggro deck if things aren't going your way it is not only not going to help you get out of that uh, bind but it's going to be actively bad for you because there's a card in your hand that is well below rate for the environment so reckless impulse i really like because it's, it's right in that sweet spot a two mana draw to like knight's whisper i think is right kind of like it's a solid c in my environment like you're happy to play it it's not you know, you're not going to be pulled into a color pair because of it or anything but it's a very solid playable probably never getting cut from a deck the other thing I like about it is that the play patterns of Light Up the Stage always felt kind of rough to me. So I have a lot of like blue, red, and blue, black, like tempo-y decks that have triggers on spellcast or prowess or something going on. And so with those prowess things, you really want to first main phase your spells if there's no reason to do them second main phase. And you can't do that most of the time with Light Up the Stage because you want that spectacle cost. So not being able to trigger your prowess creatures or whatever was kind of a cost. I also have a lot of haste creatures. And so being able to draw your cards, hit your haste creature, play it, and still attack is pretty relevant. Uh, and then just having a much better floor, I think, is going to make Reckless Impulse more appealing. So the question for me is really, I think this is much better for my goals than Light at the Stage. The question is, does moving this effect to red make it better, worse, stay the same than something like Knight's Whisper? I know you've had a chance to play with some Reckless Impulse as a pre-release. I have as well, Anthony. What do you think about Reckless Impulse in my cube? I think it's going to play very well. I mean, I've honestly always been a little bit surprised by your evaluation of Light Up the Stage. I do agree with all of those details and nuance that you just described. And I think you've made me think a little bit more about like where Spectacle, I think, really pays off in terms of like fun gameplay. So that being said, yeah, I think Reckless Impulse is kind of like, like you're not going to be casting on turn two is the thing. You're going to be casting on turn four or five when you're running out of cards in your aggro, aggro deck. And it's just going to give you a lot of late game power. Yeah, there's very few decks or situations I can imagine where I'd want to be casting Reckless Impulse on turn two. Maybe if I'm desperately digging for a land in my like blue-red control deck, I would do it. Uh, and I guess that would be turn three at that point if I'm, if I'm digging for a land because I would not have two mana and also need to land that turn. So 
it, it's hard for me to imagine time service being cast on turn two. It's either going to be in a deck where it's late and I've already got my board developed and I've got lots of mana, so whatever I draw, I can play, or I've already got my triggers in play, my spell cast triggers, my prowess creatures, my young pyromancers, whatever, and I want to trigger them and also keep churning through my deck. Um, it does kind of pale in comparison in terms of card quality to a lot of the blue card selection in cantrips, but yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it's got a place in my cube. will probably be there for a while. The card overall is kind of uninspiring to me. Like, I don't love the art. It's, you know, kind of a bummer to give your opponent information, I guess, when it's effectively just a draw to. It does play a little bit worse with counter spells, though. I do think there's a lot of situations where your opponent is just going to, like, see you flip a counter. You have mana to hold it up. And if it's just not going to cast anything next turn, like, that's not even a horrible fail case for it. You know, if it just reveals cards and your opponents then are forced to not cast any spells the next oh, turn. I'm always going to be casting into a counter spell. <laughs> right. I mean, I think a lot of times you're just going to have to do it. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I It's down on the bottom of my list just because I, I hope to get more exciting red cards that allow me to flex into different kinds of directions in the future. But for now, I think it's an appealing enough option to make the cut. Should red have divination, though? That's the real question. Yeah, well, I have, they, you only get two turns to use them, so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not it's as concerned. Now. I'm not as concerned about that kind of color pie stringency in my environment, though I do not like to just blatantly ignore stuff like that. I don't play Manatee. Well, people like playing Manatee. People though. love playing Manatee. <laughs> people love Manatee and they hate Force Spike, and I get in fights about it in our playgroup all that's, the time. You know, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next up is Ulvenwald Oddity. This is, frankly, the card I think Quest and Beast should have been. It's two green-green for a 4-4 with Trample and Haste, and it has five green-green to transform Ulvenwald Oddity, and it transforms into an 8-8 with Trample and Haste, and it gives other creatures you control plus one, plus one, and Trample and Haste. It's not a whole lot to say here. It's a very potent four-mana threat. Uh, The fact that it's got Trample and Haste makes me very confident that in most circumstances, I will get some value out of it. You know, four drops have a high bar to clear to get into my queue because I have so much removal running around. And this one does just die to removal, of course. But if you can get them tapped out, if you have them on their back foot, uh, then it does have haste and will at least get in there for something. And it's also a mana sink. I love mana sinks in my environment because it allows me to include bigger, splashy, or more expensive effects without having to include big, splashy, expensive cards that are often dead in your hand, as I mentioned in the context section. So if I had any more six or seven drops to cut for this, I would be happy to do it because this is a four drop and a seven drop, kind of. I mean, not really, because if you draw it on seven mana, you have to play it as a four drop first and then untap and do it again, unless you have so 11 maybe it's mana. it's a four drop and an eight drop. Well, 11. Uh, well, I was thinking you could... It's an eight drop next turn? Hmm. It's a seven drop next turn. Right, but I'm saying if you draw it, uh, then you're casting it... Never mind. Uh, once you get to those that numbers, really it's not tied sense. to the number of turns anymore. You're not casting seven drops on turn seven most of the time. It's either before or well after. Anyway, I think it's perfectly fine. Uh, the reason I have this on my testing list is because right now my four mana threats are largely planeswalkers. And for a variety of reasons, I'm interested in maybe slimming down on those a little bit. And so I might give this a shot as just a nice, clean four mana beater. It just punches your face in. That's all it does. You've been skeptical about double face cards in the past, right? Yeah, these are the ones I don't mind as much where the backside is both much less relevant to the card evaluation and you can tell from the front side alone that the backside is going to be a huge giant bomb and you'll probably win the game if it doesn't get removed because you can see it costs seven mana to flip it and you can see it's an 8-8 on the front side. So the extra text, kind of irrelevant. It might as well say you win the game. So at this point, it's like you're playing for the front side. You can see that the backside there is this huge upside if you get to seven mana but it's not going to really affect your evaluation in a draft or anything like that. Yeah, that's definitely true. All right. 
this is kind of the line where we're moving from cards that I'm skeptical of. Those first four cards, I'd be surprised if any of them stayed long-term, but I'm going to test them out anyway. These next six, I'm more excited about and I think have a, a life in my cube for the foreseeable future. The first is Graph Reaver. This is that one in a black 3-3 three, three with exploit. And when you exploit a creature, you destroy target Planeswalker. At the beginning of your upkeep, Graph Reaver deals one damage to you. We talked about exploit on our mechanics and cycles and themes episode for Crimson Val. And this was the card I was primarily thinking of when I was thinking of the fact that you know, exploit is oftentimes just a modal ability that you can play in decks irrelevant of any kind of tokens or sacrifice synergy where you would think, oh, I need to have a deck that wants to sacrifice creatures for the exploit cards to be good. You know, this one is even just a reasonable body, a, uh, a two mana three, three that deals a damage to you every upkeep, or it's a sorcery that says destroy target planeswalker, which is a pretty reasonable place for modal spells to be. I think I would have been really excited about this card and had it like really near the top of my list, let's say 12 months ago or 18 months ago, because for a while in my cube, you know, I, I really like Planeswalkers. I like the way they play, I like the decisions they lead to and how they sort of cause games to naturally reach a conclusion without like encouraging board stalls. And for a long time, though, I felt like Planeswalker removal was a little bit lacking and I really wanted to cut down the games where it just felt like whoever resolved the Planeswalker first or the most Planeswalkers won. And so for a while, I was really seeking that kind of Planeswalker removal. But frankly, in the past couple of years, I feel like we've gotten so much good Planeswalker removal that it's no longer a primary thing I'm seeking. So looking at this card, I think it's reasonable as a sorcery that destroys target Planeswalker. I think it's reasonable as a 2-mana 3-3 three, three that deals 1 damage to you during your upkeep. I think it's a fine, aggressive creature. But I'm not like over the moon about it. I just think it's a decent modal card and will probably be fine in any black X aggressive deck or even mono black aggro. And having that mode of destroying a Planeswalker, I think, is pretty decent. I think we've all been a little bit skeptical of black aggressive decks in your cube, but they're sort of starting to take shape a little bit more. Uh, and this is definitely, I think, another piece that just really contributes to that. People have been skeptical. There have been black aggressive decks that have performed very well. I think now with the higher density of fixing I added earlier this year, uh, the like red-black deck, for example, right, yeah. is one that I'm really excited about. You know, a red-black deck with Croxa, all these burn spells, all these black removal and hand disruption, I think it'd be really, really potent and have a really effective curve. So Graph Reaver might fit in well there. I'll also give it a shout out. I haven't made any updates to my mono black cube. Uh, I'll probably get back around to it at some point, but this is definitely like a perfect card for that context yeah. where I'm really trying to make aggro make sense when we don't have all these sort of like natural restrictions in the way that decks work. And also one of the biggest problems for those decks is the powerful planeswalkers. So it's like a perfect modal spell to reinforce that. Yep. It do the thing. While we're talking about aggro, my next card is Hopeful Initiate. One white mana for a 1-2 creature human warlock with training, and it has two and a white to remove two plus one plus one counters from among target creatures you control to destroy target artifact or enchantment. So again, training is that effect that says if you attack with this creature and a creature with higher power, it gets a plus one plus one counter on it. This is in a similar boat to something like Kessig Wolf Rider, where it is a aggressive one-drop creature that has potential late game value. It's a little different in that it also has potential like developing game value, where you can play this early, and it's not going to hit as hard as one of the various two-powered one-mana threats that White has access to. But if you can get a counter on it, or two counters on it, it can basically grow as the game state grows and re remain relevant, as opposed to having these two... like strict modes where it's very relevant early when they have no blockers and it's very relevant late when you can just start making wolf tokens this one might become might be able to basically grow with the game which is an appealing idea on power level i think this is fine something i've said a lot about aggro in my environment and with my experience designing cubes is that 
you just need one drops and you know warm bodies that do something relevant are going to oftentimes be better than nothing at all so you know i'm very happy to play a three-bit inspector or a fairy guide mother or an esper sentinel these other one powered creatures in my aggro decks that some cube designers have just like ruled out completely and said oh they have to be elite vanguards or savannah lions or i'm not even going to touch them they have to have two power and I'm, i don't feel that way so I'm, I'm okay with the one powered creatures because you know oftentimes i find they're just crewing vehicles carrying equipment you know doing something there you need creatures in play for all of the aggro stuff to work and more power is obviously better but oftentimes those trade-offs are worth it for other reasons and i'm very happy to have a, a variety of one mana spells even if elite vanguard will be better in my cube in terms of raw power level or some sort of time traveling supercomputer calculated win percentage you could prove to me that elite vanguard is better and more more strong in my cube i would still include very guide mother because i think it's more interesting and allows for more novel deck construction and and drafting and so hopeful initiate is something i'm testing in that same spirit uh, I'm going to cut Isamaru for this, which is the one mana 2-2. Two, two. No other text. It's a legendary cat. And it's a dog. It's a legendary dog. Oh, come on. Holy crap. Completely owned. What a punt. <laughs> it's a legendary dog. No other text. And this one I'm excited about because, you know, I think there's going to be interesting opportunities to continue to build this thing up as the game goes on. I'm not playing it at all for that remove 2 plus 1 plus 1 counters to destroy target artifact or enchantment, though... I'm sure it'll come up sometimes, and that could be cool, I guess. I'm actually much higher on that aspect of it. Like, again, I think that a, one of your goals is to create a lot of modal spells, and especially, like, main deckable answers to things, so you don't just have these, like, random sideboard cards. And this feels kind of like a perfect fit in there. I, I think you're also underselling, like, oh, it's a one-mana, one-power creature, but... It's going to have two power, I think, a lot of the time, you know, especially with all the Adanto vanguards and similar uh, two mana three ones that are in your cube. I think it's going to be pretty easy to turn this on. I also just love the the story here. You know, it's in a mechanical sense, it accumulates these counters and then it can spend those counters. And then now it can more easily accumulate more counters. So it just mechanically tells a sort of nice story of the way that you can play the card. Yeah. And if we want to go deep on the flavor too, the idea of, well, you're just in training, go smash these bottles and see how much more power you can learn from us. It's <laughs> kind of delightful. I didn't pick that up, but I like that. Yeah. I, to be honest, I've cut down the number of artifacts and enchantments, not consciously, it just kind of happened with my evolving cube goals a lot, such that I don't even think this effect is that relevant in my cube anymore. I don't play any Reclamation Sages, anything like that, and nobody has asked for them. Uh, it's just not really a thing floating around as much in my environment. So it's kind of incidental when you sometimes get to get like an Asikas Chariot or a Primordial Mist, but there's really actually not that many targets for these kinds of things floating around. I mean, you can get a... I guess you don't have so many Oblivion Rings anymore either, but a Smuggler's Copter or a GTA, like there's definitely targets You can name them. Sure. You can name them. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's just far <laughs> fewer... There's just far fewer than in a lot of Vintage and Legacy cubes that you see floating around. So so yeah, I mean, the, the criticism of this card, which I've heard, which I think is very fair, is that... You know, you are in a normal mono-white deck. You play this on turn one. Next turn, you attack for one and play a creature that can then train this thing up. You're not going to be able to attack with this thing as a two-power creature until, like, turn three. And then it's a two-three. Hello, this is Editor Andy coming to you from the future. Just to say that one thing I neglected to mention, which I wish I had mentioned, is that uh, you don't have to play this thing on turn one. You play this thing on turn two. On turn one, you play your normal two-power one-drop. And the first time you attack with this thing, it's a 2-3. It's basically a 1-mana 2-3. So that's a much better sequence if you can afford it with this bad boy. Play it in place of a 2-drop instead of another 1-drop, you know? Now, 2-3 is a relevant stat line, especially because my cube is very aggressive. There's a lot of aggro mirrors or similar. And so having a 3-toughness creature, I think, is going to make a big difference. And I think it's very relevant. I think there's going to be opportunities to 
play a haste creature. If you're playing a white red deck, you play this, then a hasty two drop and put a counter on this and attack immediately. Um, it's going to come up sometimes, I think, where this actually works out in your favor. So I'm interested in these kind of scaling threats, especially ones that make you do a little bit of work. And this is one of those. So we'll see if this ends up making the cut long term, but I'm cautiously optimistic. You might be talking me into trying it as well. I'm a little bit surprised it's not on your list, but I've not looked at your list yet. So we're going to see what I think of it in a moment. But I have four more cards to get through. I'll try and go a little bit faster. We should make this more clickbaity. My my number four top card for the Bun Magic Cube from Crimson Val is... I don't think you have to make it more clickbaity. <laughs> it is Cemetery Prowler. This is one green green for a 3-4 with Vigilance Creature Wolf. When it enters the battlefield, exile cards from a graveyard. Suppose you control cost one generic mana less to cast for each card type they share with cards exile with Cemetery Prowler. I'm going to cut to the chase. I've wanted to put Endurance in my cube, but I really don't like the free cast mode on it. I've actually been cutting down on free spells a bit in my cube, and I just don't like the fact that you can cast it for free. It seems kind of... Well, frankly, a lot of times it's going to be flavor text because there's very rarely early points in the game in my cube where exiting a graveyard is worth two for one yourself. So it's kind of flavor texty, and I don't love that it hits the entire graveyard when it ETBs. And here we just get a really strong body. Three mana, three, four with Vigilance is great. I like that body quite a bit. And it is incidental grave hit, which is something I'm trying to up the density of as more and more and more of the decks in my cube just have incidental value in the graveyard. So that's what I'm playing it for. If it makes some spells cheaper, great. But uh, it doesn't need to do that for me to be excited about this card. Cool, Wolf. Great. That was a good fast one. The next up is my only card from Crimson Val Commander, but it's a card I'm also very interested in. This is Occult Epiphany. It's X and a blue for an instant. Draw X cards, then discard X cards. Create a 1-1 white spirit creature token with flying for each card type among cards discarded this way. So it's a big looting spell. You can, you know, loot 2, 3, 4, 5, whatever you can pay. And then you get to make some number of spirit creatures with flying. This has drawn comparisons very fairly to Secure the Wastes, which is also an instant, also makes 1-1s. Now, those ones don't have flying, but you also are not constrained in how many you get based on the cards you discard. But you also don't draw or discard any cards. You just make a bunch of creatures. Looting is not the most relevant thing in my environment, but as I said, more and more decks are leading towards this kind of inherent graveyard value. And so I'm curious to see if more card selection effects that uh, put more cards in the graveyard could become more and more relevant here. And I'm really interested in this because I think it's a very interesting control win condition. Just be able to late game, draw three and discard three and you know make four or five potentially spirit tokens because you can get more card types in your graveyard than cards you discarded if you discard cards that have multiple types. If you discard a Phyrexian Roker as an artifact creature, or Bitter Blossom as a tribal enchantment, or Tarfire as a tribal instant, um, there are cards with multiple types on them, which means that you can generate more bodies than perhaps it first looks like from this card. So being able to just hold up interaction, hold up counter magic, hold up removal, get to the end of their turn, they don't need to do anything, you just get some card selection and also make some creatures seems like a very powerful card to me i'll just add that i do like seeing delirium is a very interesting mechanic and it's kind of been uh, isolated a little bit and that it's really just this one thing that sort of cares about card types and seeing that sort of expanded a little bit in different ways where you just care about card types that you're putting into your deck uh, i think adds some more space to draft in interesting ways yeah i have added tarmogoyf to my cube in the past few months and really, like, since I added Dragon's Rage Channeler and Unholy Heat, which both have the actual Delirium mechanic from Modern Horizons 2, I love those cards. And I added those along with Tarmogoyf and then thought, these cards are working really well, but I don't want this to be this kind of, like, random set of cards that care about this thing that no other cards in the cube address. And so I've actually added a bunch of other cards kind of in the spirit of let's try and make this caring about your graveyard and caring about the types of cards in your graveyard more of a thing. 
And a Call of Epiphany fits right in with that set of goals. So that's why I'm excited about trying this card. And yeah, I think it's going to be a cool way to, again, provide these, like, I love control decks that have these, like, almost incidental win conditions. It's like, this is already a thing your deck is willing to do, right? Like, get some card selection at the end of turn at instant speed. You're pretty happy to do that in pretty much any blue deck. And that also coming with some creatures that can possibly just end the game or ambush a planeswalker. If you still have flying, which I think is very relevant, you get to do this on end step. Maybe make enough flyers to get rid of that planeswalker they just cast you didn't have a counterspell for. I think it's going to kind of work out to like a nice card that has a lot of opportunities for, for interesting play patterns. It reminds me a little bit of Shark Typhoon just because it's scalable, it's instant speed, and gives you a flying creature or flying small creatures. It's just a little bit different in how it actually works. You know, instead of drawing you a card and making a, a single shark, it draws and discards and makes a lot of spirit tokens. Yeah, I mean, flying is the the huge, huge aspect of this card's power level, I think, because, I mean, just think about Lingering Souls. How how good would that be if it made non-flying tokens? It would be bad. You've never heard of that card. <laughs> it would be not great. All right, top two. These two cards, I think, are like the biggest slam dunks for me in this set. And the first is Cemetery Gatekeeper. This is the red creature from the Cemetery Cycle it's one and a red for a vampire with first strike. It's a 2-1. Enters the battlefield, you exile a card from a graveyard, and it has this Punisher ability, which says whenever a player plays a land or casts a spell that shares a card type with the exile card, it deals two damage to that player. This almost perfectly checks off a card that has been on my wish list for a long time, which uh, I just kind of have shortcutted in my head to Red Thalia. I just want a Red Thalia-like creature that punishes my opponent for casting instants and sorceries. I say close to because you can't choose instant and sorcery because you have to exile a card from the from a graveyard and get that sort of effect. But it also has stacked to it the other thing I've wanted for my red section for a long time, which is a two mana Ankh of Mishra creature like uh, Zozu the Punisher, but at two mana. And this can be that if there's a land in the graveyard. So the only reason this isn't like a slam dunk three and it's not, I think I rated this at 2.7 or something in my survey is just because the red two drop slot is very deep. There's tons of red two drops that would be perfectly viable on power level in my cube. And so... I'm always kind of juggling them around to try and find the right mixture of effects that I want. But I love Punisher effects. I love symmetrical effects. I love the incidental grave hate. So I think it's cards are going to stick around for a long time and fit what my red decks are doing quite well. Easy. Do you hate this card? Uh, I don't hate this card. Why would I hate this card? I don't know. Sometimes you hate powerful cards. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Do you want to guess my number one card, Anthony? Can you guess it? I think your last card is also going to be part of the Cemetery Cycle. Uh, I'm going to go with the Cemetery Illuminator, the blue one. All right. I'll cut out the five minutes of silence while you try to figure it out. But you are, you. you're wrong, Anthony. Great. I'm, I'm, guessing, maybe <laughs> you sorted this, I'm guessing maybe you sorted the set by like rarity or something, thinking I'm looking for some big, splashy, powerful card. That's correct. My number one card is Dreadfugue. This is one black mana. It's an uncommon for a sorcery. Target player reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from it with converted mana cost two or less. That player discards that card. It has cleave for two and a black and then can take any non-land card from their hand, not limited by mana value anymore. I don't like cleave. We talked about it at length on our set review episode. My feelings have not changed on cleave. I think it's a clunky way to do modal cards and one of my least favorite mechanics we've seen in a long time. That said, this card is an effect I love enough in my cube that I am going to have to just deal with it and forego that. Now, the cleave cards, I think, are better when you just can shortcut them in your head. You don't have to actually read the awful card in your hands. You can just know what it does. And I think that's how this card is going to very often play. Also, as far as cleave cards go, the fact that it's pretty clean and that the restriction is very obvious and you just remove that restriction if you pay more mana is, I think, more straightforward than some of the clunkier cleave cards that remove different parts of rules text and you have to really process quite a bit to, to learn from. So I love hand disruption in my cube. We talked about my cube is very low curving. So 
you know, a uh, one mana to take a two mana spell, or a one mana or two mana spell is going to be very worth it most of the time. You're rarely going to whiff on that, for example. But then having that three mana mode, I think is very relevant. It's a mode that'll let you basically, you know, you're playing an aggressive deck, you're on turn three or four, and the only out your opponent has is a board wipe. You just dreadfugue them. And if they got a board wipe, you take it. And if not, you just go on to win the game handily. So I'm excited about the card. Uh, I'm going to have to put up with Cleave, even though it's not my favorite mechanic, because... I just love hand disruption. I love all the options it chooses. I love the information you get when you see what your opponent chooses out of your hand to take from you and how what you learn about what their hand might be from that interaction. And it's another one mana spell. And I just love cheap mana spells. So that's the one for me. Number one with a bullet. I mean, let's just say you're not obligated to put up with it. You don't have to tolerate uh, cleave. If you don't like the mechanic enough, don't play it. It's just that you like all the benefits more, so yes. that outweighs it. Every every choice is a complicated sum of a lot of factors, and some of those are aesthetic, some of those are based on play patterns, some are based on power level, and you gotta just add all those complicated pieces up and see if it comes out higher in the pro or con column for you. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, I really like the blood token mechanic. I loved playing with it at pre-release. I also really liked it even before I played with it. On our mechanics episode, I talked at length, but I thought it was a cool mechanic. There just didn't happen to be any blood token producing cards that I thought would be able to hang on terms of power level with my cube. And, you know, my, my cube is the result of me making this calculus for many, many years, right? And deciding what cards I like and don't like and trying to, like, come to some conclusion about them because... If I were to look at this set alone and try and make a cube just from the cards in this set, there'd be a lot of blood cards in it. But I also like Snapcaster Mage, and I also like Dark Confidant, and I also like Balance, and I also like Umazaba's Chite, and those cards are really powerful. And so if I want to play those cards and not have them be huge standouts and decide drafts and games as soon as they're cast and resolved, there's a certain power level bar that cards have to clear before they can really be considered. And in this case, Dreadfugue is powerful enough. The cleave is bad, but it's not so offensive to me that I'm not going to run the card. And importantly, Anthony... We get a lot of really good red two drops. Like, I think every set pretty much has a red two drop that's worth consideration or powerful enough that it could hang in my cube. We don't get that much one mana hand hate anymore that is relevant. I mean, the last time we got a really good one, I think was like Divest maybe with Dominaria. Um, it's actually an interesting opportunity to talk about Drillbit. Drillbit is that uh, three mana thought sees that you can cast for spectacle just for a black. And I won't re redo my entire spiel about light at the stage, but uh, I feel similarly about the relationship between Dreadfugue and Drillbit as I do between Light at the Stage and Reckless Impulse. I think that's an interesting comparison we should go into at some point, because I, th I think that's sort of like, maybe we should have do a whole episode just on uh, the two main phases. How about that? <laughs> I like that idea. The, All right, great. the main phase episode will be great. That took longer than I anticipated, Anthony. Hopefully it was useful. That's the summary of the cards I'm most excited about from my cube from the latest sets. So I have only four cards for my regular oh, cube. Oh, great. That it's I'm okay that I went a little bit long. However, I do have uh, three other cubes here that I have a couple cards to talk about. So we can see how deep and how weird we want to get. Let's do the regular cube first. And then I think some of those are going to be short, right? Like you have... Here's well, the don't spoil it. Okay, don't spoil I, won't, it. <laughs> I won't spoil it. All right, go ahead. All right, so for the regular cube, which to give this context, it is a much, much lower powered cube with some of my favorite cards that are around, uh, you know, sort of uh, good uncommon or not great rare kind of power level. And it's really focused on a lot of like small overlapping themes and trying to create a really interesting dynamic draft environment. So the first card, I have two cards here that are kind of just like new things I want to throw in and try. Uh, no surprise, I uh, am always drawn to all the new great white cards. I'm the only cube designer who says this with every new set, but uh, my white section is getting a little thick these days. Uh, and then I also have two Mine cards. Mine is two of my main cube. My cube's got 48 white cards, way more than any other color right now. 
And that's okay. I'm just saying you're not alone. Some people like white, even though it's only EDH players that don't like white. Let's be it's, real. It's true, but that's a vocal population. And everybody's EDH player eventually. And then I have two other cards, which are sort of like very literal sort of sideways shifts to existing cards in the cube. So I think those are a little bit interesting to talk about as well. This first one, I think, is going to surprise you as much as your first choice, which is by invitation only. <laughs> I'm not surprised and excited that you also consider it for your list. I thought about it for the regular cube when I was thinking about it for my cube as well. So I think it's pretty interesting because one of the sort of features of this cube is compared to something like Andy's Bun Magic Cube, a lot of effects you can kind of just say like, well, let's just add one mana to it and we kind of have this new power level. And that doesn't totally scale and it's been a lot of like playtesting and iteration to figure out how different effects and their costs have sort of scale differently. Um, but that does hold true with the Wrath. So they're generally five or six mana, and they're honestly just not as impactful in shaping of the environment as uh, they are in a lot of cubes, even though they are present. And I think that by invitation only is potentially a more interesting five mana uh, wrath because of that nature that it doesn't need to go in this sort of dedicated control deck right. you really can just play it in your sort of like mid-rangey pile of creatures deck which is a lot of sort of what this cube is about so yeah, even control decks in your cube are just slower creature decks like right. you're always winning with creature combat i mean i guess technically in my cube you're also always winning with creature combat but often it's creature combat like you made a bunch my of two tokens. lingering souls tokens that, sure. are, that still survived and just were still around to kill you to death it's not like your cube where you're like i played a big flyer and eventually killed you with it you know Right. So I think that this card might end up being a little bit overpowered, but because it just offers something that I think is really, really unique, it's worth giving a try. I'm not sure if I'm going to cut another Wrath or just throw it in, uh, but we'll see what happens. Do you think this card will affect the direction of your draft? Let's say you're playing a white deck, second pack, you open up by invitation only, you decide to take it. Is it going to change the pick orders of other cards, you think? And if so, in what way? I think so. And we, we've talked about this a couple times about sort of how key cards can sort of shape the perception and sort of create inroads into what you're drafting. And I think this really is one of those where I think currently you could definitely say like, well, if we just like build the best deck you can that involves a bunch of wraths in this cube, I think you could definitely make very solid decks. But I think that because they're a little bit more expensive, a lot of players are not as interested, they're not as appealing, so you just don't find those inroads as quickly. So I think this being a much more flexible Wrath does sort of provide that. So even if it doesn't really impact, you know, what the time-traveling supercomputer could do, I think it will impact the way people evaluate cards during a draft. And you think they'll specifically try and be more controlling after they have it? I think so. Because that's, that's my only concern. I also think it might be a little bit towards the top of the power level spectrum, which is, of course, fine. Some cards have to be at the top of the power level of every single cube. I just wonder if it's going to be like, a oh, this goes in every single white deck. It doesn't matter how many creatures I'm playing. Nothing matters. Like, if I'm ahead on board, I cast it and then crush them. And if I'm behind on board, I cast it and wipe the board. And I wonder if it just becomes kind of a, like, it's so modal and it is, as you mentioned, so good in two drastically different modes that it just doesn't matter what kind of white deck it's right. in. It's always good. Which, I'm not sure, but maybe we'll find out. Right, and I think that's actually a perfect summary of what I would evaluate this to be a failure. It's not a failure if it's just a powerful card. It's a failure if it just fits everywhere, you yeah. just draft all the time, you don't really make decisions about it, uh, and sometimes it just like wins the game in a way that feels sort of random and unintentional. Yeah, I don't think this is a perfect comparison, but it did make me think a little bit of Extinction Event, which was in some ways similar, where I don't feel like you would take Extinction Event and go, like, ooh, I'm the even deck now, I'm only going to take even-costed creatures. It just was like you take Extinction Event because it was a potential source of card advantage. You could, you know, two for one, three for one your opponent with it in some circumstances. And then sometimes you got to play in a way that it like really maximized it. Like you've I've got it in your opening hand. You just skip playing your three drops and you only play your two and four drops and then cast it. Or your opponent's got a bunch of twos. So you just cast your three drop and then cast it. But it, those didn't feel like 
the person was getting rewarded for savvy play, it was like, yeah, you did the obvious thing. You just, you know, and right. it, this could be similar where it's like, you know, you, the modes are obvious. You just choose the best one. And it's always very relevant. The type of deck in my cube that I'm worried that the invitation only will be bad against is like a control deck. And our control decks are maybe where our cubes differ the most in terms of how they actually play. My control decks are almost pure answers with those incidental win conditions. You know, they have man lands, they have uh, Emiria's calls, they maybe have a planeswalker or two, but the win conditions are like the absolute last consideration. All you're thinking about is how do I remove all of my opponent's threats at all times and protect myself completely. And against that deck, by invitation only doesn't do anything because they're not going to have anything to board wipe. They're not even going to have anything to, you know, plague wind or whatever. It's just not really, really relevant. In your cube, that's not what the control decks look like. They are going to have creatures in play no matter what state of the game it's at. They're going to be playing little cantripping creatures, good blockers, that kind of stuff. So it might be good all the time. We'll see. We'll see. So next up, this is a quick and easy one. Uh, Griff Rider. So this is a three mana two one with flying and training. Uh, another just nice little white card. This was right on the cusp of, am I going to run this in my pre-release deck? I ended up playing like a Mardu sealed pool for my pre-release deck. And I needed a couple more three drops. And this was competing with some other ones. And I ended up playing them and then siding them out sometimes. And they were good sometimes. They were bad sometimes. But I definitely got a, a very clear picture into why the training mechanic is more different from the mentor mechanic maybe than we first initially touched on, which I think I was kind of like getting at it a little bit, but I did a horrible job articulating it and even understanding it myself, which is that my opponent had a board state in one of our sealed games where they had two of these things in play. And then it was like, if they draw a three-powered creature, I am just dead. <laughs> it's like, and here, like the, the training creatures, again, are the small creatures in the like training versus mentor comparison. Mm -hmm. And here, the fact that the keyword is distributed amongst these small creatures made it so much harder for me to like, controlled the board with removal because if they had drawn a really good mentor creature with their two dinky flyers they just killed the mentor creature whatever it's all over if they draw any three power creature now doesn't matter what it is doesn't even, it could be bad it doesn't matter what it is uh if they get to attack with it they're going to make these two three twos which they did and killed me with so it's interesting that training is seems much better in multiples than mentor was on cheap creatures that's interesting well we're not going to have that here because this right. is the only one i'm adding but i do feel like i first some of those things you're touching on like right now i think removal is feeling a little bit weak because there's maybe a little bit too much token generation and some of the aggressive decks still have a little bit of trouble crossing the finish line and getting that reach so i like you know an evasive threat that interacts with combat interacts with power matters and interacts with counters it just really hits in a lot of points uh that are you know part of the goals in this sort of design structure for this cube all right for my next card i think i'm finally gonna do it i think i'm finally gonna add a double-faced card to this cube. oh boy uh so this is one of two sort of pretty direct shifts uh between cards so currently i have the card adorned pouncer in my cube uh which is one one with double strike and can reanimate it for five mana as a four four twin blade geist i think is definitely a, a power downgrade but i think it just hits all the the points and and you know, uh, reinforces the, the kind of gameplay I'm looking for so much more. So it's also two mana for one one with double strike, uh, but it has disturb for three and it comes back as an enchantment that grants a uh, creature double strike. So it's similar in that it's, uh, it, and I should say, I love double strike in a lot of ways. I feel like it's one of those keyword mechanics that just you give any other mechanic to a card or any other ability to a card and it just works so well with double strike whether that's just increasing its power putting counters on it uh having combat damage triggers all kinds of stuff it's just such a cool thing to kind of mix and match and uh, fencing ace doesn't quite get there on power level i don't think it would make it index pretty much ever so I i've wanted kind of this fencing ace with a little bit of upside the problem with the Dorn pouncer for me is just that 
in decks that you're playing this, you're often not like really hoping to get to five mana and being able to reanimate it. So it's kind of like this bonus. But then once you do get there, it's just sort of linear. You're just sort of like, I do this now. Do you have a removal or a bounce spell? If not, you're kind of just dead or you're you're at least in the abyss. So I like that Twinblade Geist is a much more interesting card that forces you to actually still have a board presence and really critically give you more choices because now you get to double down on double strike and say, well, I can now mix and match this double strike with my creature that has counters on it or just, you know, has more power or whatever else is going on rather than this just much more linear gameplay of I'm going to get this and it's going to sometimes be incredibly powerful. I saw Twin Blade guys and was like, I hope Anthony puts this in the regular cube. Then I had the thought he probably wanted to DFC. Yeah. And so I'm so glad to hear that you actually are doing it because I, I think it fits perfectly with the kinds of combat things you like to include in the cube. Right. And for all the reasons you mentioned, you did a very good job articulating it. But I think it's great in that cube and I'm excited for it. Another small shift is Whispering Wizard. So currently I have Murmuring Mystic in the cube, which is four mana for a one five. I might be getting that wrong. I think it's one five. Yeah. Uh, which whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, create a 1-1 blue bird illusion creature token with flying. I love this card. It's four is a little bit much maybe in this environment for the payoff, but and maybe the spells theme isn't quite working, but I, I just love this card for, I don't know. It's got no great reason. art. It's got great it's, art. It's got a spell trigger. We'll I also have an affection for that card. Uh, so we have in Innistrad Crimson Vow, Whispering Wizard, which is again, four mana for a 3-2, Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, make a 1-1 white spirit token with flying. Oh no, I just finished reading the card. Go! This ability only triggers once per turn? That's kind of a big difference. Okay, I think there's a whole bunch of interesting conversation that we can have, and then I'm just going to ignore this card and we can move on. So what I do really like about it is I, I don't necessarily love just how big and defensive the body on Murmuring Mystic is. I feel like it's very easy, especially when you're lowering the power level just to, if, if you're not paying attention to it, get into like just big kind of grindy board stalls and just replacing it with a more aggressive body, I think fits in really well with just keeping the games moving. It is a huge difference in that there is a fair amount of small removal, you know, your shocks and your disfigures. Yeah. So I think that's a big knock on this card in terms of uh, its power level but it also triggers on all kinds of spells so or you know your artifacts your enchantments whatever else you have as opposed to justice and sorceries which marine mystic triggers right which sort of fitting into that bridging thing like the spells theme is not quite something that's really working all the time Uh, but the artifact theme works a little bit better so having a bridge card that kind of lets you get some payoffs from both i think supports that really well the last thing that I do really like about Whispering Wizard is just that it doesn't make a unique token. It just yeah. makes a token that's already there, which, again, that sounds kind of like a stupid aesthetic thing, but no, we're choosing not. from all 20,000 magic cards. We can definitely afford to to make those like minute decisions and allow that small pro to, to matter. And it's annoying to have all these different tokens. I feel like maybe in the past couple of sets, Wizards has actually gotten more okay with cards making off-color tokens. Like, we see that on a Cold Epiphany, too. It also makes one on white spirits. I feel like there's examples from the passive magic, obviously, but I feel like there was maybe this idea that, oh, it's weird if this memory mystic makes white spirits, but it's just not. It's fine. It's also Normal. obviously a set that is spirits is a theme here. So right. it makes I know sense that's the there. Case, yeah. But uh, only triggers once a turn, Anthony. That is a big downside. I'm, I'm embarrassed I didn't read that. It's hard to read all the magic cards. And to be fair, I'm not actually convinced it's a huge power level downside, but it's a huge complexity. Now you have to remember this thing mm-hmm. like oh, I double spelled and oops, I don't get the second trigger. I get punished now for playing efficiently downside, which I think is kind of a feel bad. 
it does that much worse art too. That is the last thing I really have to have to mention or agree with is that the worse art is again a pretty big downside. Yeah, for a couple no, of reasons. No I like Murray Mystic more. I only just noticed now that these are both alliterative names of, of spell casting wizards that have some sort of whisper or murmur. Like, why are they talking quietly? What's the flavor there? I mean, the flavor of Murmuring Mystic makes a lot of sense to me. He's just wandering around, muttering to himself, and these birds are kind of, as he's thinking about spells, these birds are kind of appearing, and he's kind of not paying attention. But then what's Uh, going on here? Why is this guy whispering? That doesn't make any sense. Also, why is he in a Tom Cruise movie? With the Minority Report. Mm -hmm. He's got the the Minority Report screen going on in front of him. It's very odd. I don't like this card. It does not spark joy. Yeah. So I, I will say, you know, obviously the uh, only once a turn, let's just go ahead and delete this from my list right now. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Uh, the only once a turn is obviously a power level downside. I don't think that is objectively worse, like as a game. No, piece. definitely like, not. It's it's not that more powerful cards are better in any way. But I'm, I'm saying Murmuring Mystic is already kind of on the cusp where it doesn't always make it into decks as often. So it's like in this specific context, I think that is a power downside that uh, makes this card just going to fit into less decks. More importantly than that, I think the the like double spell turns is where you really have a lot of fun with these. And you're like, oh, that's I the get payoff to, for putting a four payoff, mana, right. you know, build around thing in your deck. Like I'll keep this cantrip in my hand because I'm, I know I'm going to be able to double spell the, the turn after. Right. And especially, you know, because it's uh, clearly very easy to miss that only once a turn caveat. It could be a real bummer if you put this in your deck without realizing it and you go ahead and start making a bunch of spirits and your opponent says, sorry, friend. Yeah. Yeah. If they gave us Murray Mystic that just triggered on non-creature spells and made one-on-one white spirits that were white, that's what I want. One day. Given an infinite universe, all things are magic cards. So that's all I've got for my regular cube. Not huge changes, but I think a couple little interesting uh, points of discussion. Can I ask about a card? Absolutely. Ask about any card is you it, want. Is it weird? Is this a weird like uh, vibe to ask about a card that you didn't include? Obviously, you didn't include most of the set. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you thought about Parish Blade Trainee. This is one of the other training creatures, one in a white for a 1-2 with training. And when it dies, you put its counters on target creature you control. So it kind of moves around its training counters. I don't have a good reason. For some reason, this just doesn't uh, excite me as much. But like, it, I, I agree that it definitely fits in all those same you know categories. Yeah, I asked because I think it's a little better than the Griff. I'm more excited to play it in an aggressive deck than the Griff. Okay, but, I'm gonna, but what I'm gonna write I that down and think about it. Like, I feel like flying is very important to some of the white aggressive decks. However, there I've included maybe a few too many three mana two power flyers, so I, I could see that actually making more sense. I, I feel like this one's obviously gonna be easier to put a counter on, right? Because right. it's only got one power instead of two power. It's a little cheaper, which I'm you know a sucker for cheap spells, and then that like upside of being able to put that counter on something else feels like it ticks a lot of those boxes you like about. Give a thing double strike. Like, oh, for sure. That yeah. counter's value could be a lot more valuable than just plus one to power and toughness, depending on where you put it. And those kinds of small decisions feel like something that the regular cube is often trying to encourage. Right. Well, we could just try both. Hit us with the other cubes, Anthony. All right. Where do you want to start? We got the turbo cube. We have the irregular cube. Oh, just do a regular cube next. I feel like a regular cube is spiritually uh, a, a sister to the to the regular cube not just in name but also i feel like it's not that too far off in terms of power level but you're just kind of letting yourself a little more leeway with the uh with the rare module cards 
Totally. It's sort of just we're taking basically the same design philosophy of lots of small overlapping mechanics from the regular cube, but focusing on a different cluster of mechanics, which are all very much focused on the graveyard. So it's a lot of madness and flashback and uh, looting, things like that. And additionally, we have this sort of idea of a set of rares, which uh, we're going to shuffle a couple into. And so you have these kind of like interesting build arounds. Uh, so full disclosure, this is a cube that's still in the works, but I still am thinking about it a bunch. So hey, man, got some new new cards. To a think cube about. you think about a lot is a cube just as much as a cube that exists in a box somewhere in your house. I think that the thing that I think is important to note about your philosophy here of these rare cards is that we both like playing retail limited. It's fun to get like a powerful build around in a retail limited deck. One of the downsides of that kind of play pattern in cube is that it's the same cube every time. If you keep opening up the same powerful card and that's the same powerful card that keeps dictating your draft and deciding games, that can get old a lot more quickly than if it's only a once a, once in a while kind of thing. And so the rare cards here are, you know, can be more pushed in terms of power level because it's okay if they do dominate the drafting games a little more because it's only going to happen on the rare occasion that they're actually mixed in and opened. Right. And when we say rare, uh, I am not beholden to actually choosing cards that are actually printed as rares. It's just some cards that I want to appear occasionally. Cards you want to appear more infrequently. They're infrequent. So first up, just to talk about a couple of comments that I'm interested in. I'm really interested in blood tokens. Like you said, they are a lot of fun to play with. Just the ability to basically just add cycling one to any card in your hand, plus all the, the little interactions of just having extra permanence in play is really fun gameplay, I think, and is perfect for this environment where we're focused on the graveyard and uh, being able to loot cards and things like that. Unfortunately, there aren't quite as many that uh, really, I I think, are great fits. You know, unfortunately, when we take a set, if we're really interested in a mechanic, when we slice it down, it's sort of like, well... Okay, there's a couple cards that are sort of really, really narrow and want you to be in an environment where you have tons of this mechanic, so those aren't quite going to fit. We have a couple rares that uh, are just much more overpowered for the set. We have a couple commons that are a little bit too niche and touch on a second mechanic we're not interested in. Maybe it's a tribal theme. And you don't end up with a ton when we talk about these set mechanics that are necessarily, you know, a shoe in for a, a more generic context. Uh, but the three that I think are going to make sense are Belligerent Guest, which is a three mana, three, two with Trample. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, create a blood token. So it's one mana, discard a card, draw a card. We also have Blood Petal Celebrant, one in a red for a two, one. It has first strike when it's attacking and when it dies, make a blood token. The last one I have is Blood Craze Socialite. This is three and a black for a three, three with Menace. When it enters the battlefield, you create a blood token and when it attacks, you can sacrifice a blood token. If you do, it gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. So I think all of these are pretty reasonable fits just to add a little bit of a splash of some blood tokens here or there. This environment definitely is a little bit powered down compared to the regular cube, both because I, I think that creating that sort of disparity of the power level between rares and the rest of the cube is sort of interesting. And also, like uh, when we're talking about madness and cycling, like a, lo- a lot of these mechanics that have been around for a long time, the power level was just a lot lower, especially on creatures when we're looking at some of those older cards. So if we want to make madness really work, that's kind of a necessity. We do see in the Blood Craze Socialite, which whenever you attack, you can sacrifice the blood tokens. That's even stepping on that territory a little bit where you kind of either use that blood token once to get in some extra damage. But because we don't have this environment where you're making a ton of these tokens, that text kind of doesn't really matter. So these are kind of just what I'm thinking at. I'm going to keep looking through these blood tokens and see if there are better fits. Um, But overall, that's kind of where I'm thinking for adding a little bit of this mechanic into this environment. I loved playing with and against blood tokens even more than I anticipated from reading the mechanic before we played pre-release. I think it's great. So I'm excited to see these in play in the irregular cube whenever we get to play it. 
soon, soon. All right, so next up, I have a couple rares for the same cube. So this is just such an exciting place because I have this big stack of cards and I can just add anything that's kind of like an interesting, fun build around, but maybe doesn't really make sense or is like too narrow. So you just don't want to see it all the time. Uh, we can just throw whatever we want in there. Uh, so the first thing I have there is Curse of Hospitality. This was actually something that I got to play in my pre-release deck. It's two and a red for an enchantment. The wording is bad, I have to say. <laughs> and he begins to read it. <laughs> uh, the, the wording is definitely structured to allow it to work in a certain way in multiplayer. But essentially what it does is you enchant a player. All of your creatures, have, you enchant your opponent, I should say. All of your creatures have trample. Uh, and whenever you deal combat damage to your opponent uh, with each of those creatures, you get to exile the top card of your opponent's library and you can cast it that turn, which I think just fits perfectly in this context of, I don't want to see this card all the time. These kinds of enchantments can be very tilting uh, when you just don't have easy ways to interact with it, or uh, just like on some board states, this is just going to be nuts. But taking this early in a otherwise low power context, and then being able to try and get as many evasive threats and cheap removal and playing around trying to maximize this, I think occasionally is going to be a fun time. Yeah, I'm not sure we've talked explicitly about playing with your opponent's cards, but that is a widely beloved theme and mechanic in cube design. People love cards and let them play their opponent's cards. And it part of it, I think, just stems from the, like, you know, impact of, haha, I got your cards now, and doesn't that make you feel bad? But I also think it comes from this novelty of, like, your deck works in a certain way, and you draft it to work a certain way, and there's, like, the color pie and all these restricting factors that keep you from being able to combine cards in novel ways. And this is a card now that lets you break some of those rules and combine cards in perhaps interesting ways they wouldn't otherwise be combined. And I think that's where a lot of the excitement comes from in playing with your opponent's cards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I mean, really, if you look at it in one way, this is like a, a pretty bad uh, coastal piracy, I think, is the curiosity for your entire team card, where you just draw a card every time a creature you control deals damage to your opponent, except the cards are probably pound for pound a little worse because they're not in your deck that basically has synergy with whatever your deck is doing. But I think that emotional upside of like, now I get to play this card that doesn't even fit in my deck and see how it combines with this creature is, is very fun. I have an EDH deck that's built around this, and it, it's a lot of fun to play with people's cards and have those novel interactions. That's so true. I mean, when you have a, your 40-card deck, you've got your 23 non-land cards or whatever-ish. Like, the, the number of ways those cards can interact is tremendous, but it is somewhat finite. Like, you could imagine, like, what are the most extreme things this deck could do? Like, oh, here's what I could do on turn one for my most powerful opener. And so having this one card that's like, well you don't have those boundaries anymore. Anything could happen. You could flip a thing yeah. that just like suddenly in this moment means, oh, I'm going to put this aura on my creature that's going to totally do this insane thing that I never thought of while building my deck. I think you're totally right. That, is that moment of excitement appealing. is very yeah. fun for people. I think it's also not fun for some people as well. Yes. Some people get tilted. Some people with their cards. don't like having their cards touched. But again, I think that's what's great about having this this idea of these rares because you're just not going to see this all the time. Yep. I promise I'm not too influenced by my pre-release pool, uh, but I also <laughs> threw Aerith Torment, Tormented Prophet on this list. And I think this is a good card just to talk about in general, because I think it's very interesting, and I think a lot of cube designers will be interested in it. So this is one blue and red for a legendary human wizard. It is a 2-4, and if you would draw a card, exile the top two cards of your library instead, and you may play those cards this turn. So it's kind of just like your own personal Howling Mine, but you're exiling the cards... I, I don't know. I, what do you think of this card? I don't know what to make of this card. I think that's why I like it. I, the Revealing the cards is a downside, and then, especially in decks that have blue in them, uh, this this is a better example of the counterspells being a lot worse with this card than I think Reckless Impulse is, because 
You got one Reckless Impulse in your deck. You're only going to reveal two cards. If you happen to reveal a Counterspell, whatever. This is going to replace every single draw you have for the rest of the game. Now, every single card you draw is a known quantity, right? Like, I, I know what your hand is, essentially. I mean, you have a hand left over from before you cast Aerith or Resolved Aerith that is still some hidden information, but a lot of public information, and you can only play them this turn, so... So it really doesn't work with Counterspells. really doesn't work with Counterspells unless you have a way to draw cards at instant speed, but that way you have to draw cards at instant speed has to be a permanent in play or, or a one card of those that cards, was already right. in your hand before yep. you resolved Aerith. And so for that reason, it's really just like a very proactive card, but it's a... Three mana, two, four, which is not a very proactive body. So I don't really know what to make of it. And honestly, I thought it would be more, it would feel more powerful than it felt in our pre release. Okay, games. that could be my fault. I don't think it's your fault. You had a game where you, you know, resolved Aerith on turn three. And then, like, I thought, well, I'm surely I'm dead very quickly. And you continued to resolve more bombs. And somehow I survived really far into the late game. You eventually won, but it took a long, long time, long enough that our match eventually ended in a draw. But. I was not scared of it. I wasn't like, oh, no, this is a huge problem. I, like, as it played out, I was like, oh, this seems fine. You just, like, hit all your land jobs, basically. It's kind of kind of what it came down to. Yeah, it does help with that. Yeah, I mean, this is in this weird little space where it's like, I'm interested in collecting this pile of cards that are difficult to evaluate in a lot of ways and maybe have really interesting upsides. I love cards that are difficult to evaluate. So, so I think that it is a really good fit for that particular context. I, I think it also could be a good fit in plenty of other places but yeah finding ways to sort of break that parody and figure out like it was really interesting especially with blood tokens when i had this in play on turn three and then those three cards left in my hand uh were discard fodder that basically each said draw two cards uh because i knew i was going to yeah. make a bunch of blood tokens throughout the rest of the game so it just led to a really interesting mini game yeah i would say more data required before i can tell you what i think about this card but on its face i think it's kind of like in conflict with itself a little bit Make this a 3-3 a three, three with Prowess or something, and then I'm like all in. But as a 2-4, it's like, what are you, what Ooh, are you doing? Prowess would have been great. Prowess would have been really prowess great. is a great mechanic. This could have been a 2-2 two, two with Prowess, and I think it would have been pretty messed up, to be honest. Yeah. All right, another weird one. Again, I just want to talk about some weird cards. That's what we're here for. Uh, I've, I've thrown Ancient Lumberknot on the list. So this is a 4-mana 1-4. Each creature you control with toughness greater than its power assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power. So this is a slightly wordier version of the... Door in the Siege Tower. What's that? Assault Formation. This is a slightly wordier version of the Assault Formation text, where all your creatures go in butts first, but they've tweaked it so if your creature actually has lower power than its toughness, it doesn't get smaller. So it's... I actually didn't notice that when I read this card. Like, I saw the words toughness greater. I saw the words, like... And I just, like, in my head, my brain, like, completed that sentence to just, like, the Assault Formation text. That's a weird kind of complexity, but that's definitely <laughs> yeah. real. So I think that Salt Formation is very interesting, and I actually had a, an opportunity maybe a month or two, we did a, a flashback conspiracy, take the crown draft, uh, and I drafted Weight Advantage, which is a conspiracy that just gives you that effect all the time, which conspiracies are just the most busted build rounds because you always have access to them, so you right. can lean really hard into it. And it definitely was weird that like that downside did make a bunch of my creatures worse, but it was overall very powerful. And so I might be a little bit influenced by that that just that that specific change in the rules text where this isn't such a build around where i need to totally like warp my draft because it's it's not going to make any of my creatures worse but it does have pretty serious upside and the floor is a four mana four four so i think this isn't uh, a build around in the same way of uh, a lot of these others where it's like really really powerful i don't think it's a huge power outlier even in this context but as something that is just sort of the less oppressive example of something like weight advantage or assault formation i think it's kind of interesting i'm coming out swinging here 
I don't think this makes any sense for the rare module. Get Doran the Siege Tower in there. If you're going to do this effect, you should do it. Doran, three mana, five, five. Actually worth pulling you into that effect instead of this four mana, four, four, which doesn't pull you into it. Actually a risk because it affects all of your creatures, but also can punish your opponent because they have a bunch of, you know, creatures with more power than they have toughness. You play Doran. It's symmetrical across the entire board, baby. True. Yeah, that's... All right. I mean, this is why we have these conversations. I've also toyed with the idea a little bit of just putting in... In fact, maybe I already do have weight advantage in that list, just because I mean, conspiracy weight advantage also works. I mean, conspiracy I, is another perfect card type where it's like I do not want to play with him all the time, but every once in a while. But this effect, this assault formation rules text, I think is the perfect kind of thing to have be a uh, occasional thing because right. exactly it yeah. does so dramatically change the evaluation of a lot of cards. Like a lot of cards get a lot better, a lot of cards get a lot worse. I've seen cubes that have a whole deck built around this, but then honestly, it becomes kind of like a one note thing. It's like all right, you right. put in all the cards that are really good with with assault formation, great. It's way more fun to me when you have to like pick through cards that are otherwise playable on their own, but are slightly recontextualized with this new rules text. And I just like Doran as the cleanest version of that effect that also is the biggest pull in terms of raw power level. Also, I like the idea of the person playing that deck wanting to play more colors anyway to play more of the cards that have more benefit from this change in the uh, in the power and toughness, which you can maybe get with a three color card like Doran. Right, it's funny how it sort of focuses you on a more narrow set of cards, but to, to get those narrow set of cards, you actually have to branch out more. So your pool's bigger, so like you get a to tree pull. folk. There you go, I see what you did there. That was kind of a found pun. Anyway, one more that I thought was interesting is the Patchwork Crawler. So this is two mana, one and a blue for a one-two for, it's a zombie horror. You may pay three mana to exile a creature card from your graveyard, put a counter on Patchwork Crawler, and it gains all activated abilities of all cards exiled with it. This is similarly, it's just like one of these really cool, what, what's the older card? Necrotic, not Necrotic Ooze. Um, yeah, Necrotic Ooze Necrotic is the one Ooze. that has all abilities of all creature cards in your graveyard. This is a little bit tamer. It has the fail case of uh, if you're kind of late in the game, you can kind of just get some counters and still have a creature. Pretty bad scavenging ooze, but still a scavenging ooze nonetheless. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious to see how that'll play out. I'll definitely do a little bit more of a careful review of the list and see if there are enough activated abilities for it to really uh, pay off. But it's again, like that perfect oh, I have this cool rare, can I actually assemble a deck that can, you know, combine two different activated abilities to turn this into something much more than some of its parts? I like that one as a just, like, throw a bone to the rare pile. Like, can someone do something with this? Let's find out. And it's only possible because the regular cube has this big power delta, right? Like, right, right. I can't just put this in my cube. It would be stone unplayable. You would never draft it, never take it. It would never do anything. Uh, even your regular cube, this would be pretty awful in, I think, and wouldn't see any play. But the commons, as the, as it were, the, like, the core of the irregular cube is enough lower power level that like maybe a 2-mana 1-2 that grows is just fine as a baseline, enough so that you're willing to like take it on a bit of a hedge and then maybe find a way to combine the cards to make something cool happen with it. I do have a small complaint about this card. Why does it have to be my graveyard? Why can't I start combining stuff from my opponent's graveyard and use their abilities too? That sounds cool. No disagreement for me. That'd be even more patchworky. God, the illustration on this is also really something. Truly horrific. It's great job. Who? I'm trying to read that name too right now. It. It's too blurry. It's Fezbra. Fezbra, you're a true sicko. <laughs> true sicko mode, Fezbra. We respect that. All right, so that's what I've got for the irregular cube. Do you want to talk about the turbo cube? I absolutely want. That's my favorite cube to talk about. Let's okay, do it. Okay, great. It's turbo time. So I've got a couple cards here for the turbo cube. We can summarize this one really quickly. It's a very simple cube with just one small tweak on the rules of Magic the Gathering. All spells and activated abilities cost two less, two generic mana less. Yep. Easy. Uh, so everything's broken. You do a whole bunch of stuff on turn one. Everything's broken and the points cards. don't matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the show where everything's made up and the points don't matter. 
But it's actually a little bit more playable than I expected it would be. It's very playable, and you haven't included any of the egregiously broken. I mean, well, I guess you could argue the eggs are egregiously broken, but you haven't included the cards that are just like, that are is like true. one card infinite combos or stuff like that. So I think the, the cube is entirely, I think it's a healthy balance format. That's amazing. It's just like a healthy balance format. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, there's different kinds of racing, right? And there's like, you know, you can have balance equal racing at like the go-kart track. And this is just happens to be like Formula One cars that are like shot full of nitrous oxide. It's yeah, but they're all doing it. So, you know, it's maybe your car goes into turn one and bursts into flames and just flies into the grandstands. (laughs) I've had decks that have done that before. Uh, Maybe you get to, you know, win by a huge margin. It's a, it's a cool cube. I like it a lot. Okay, so there are two pretty easy includes. This is the one cube that I maintain that is sort of like power maxed, like with some exceptions. I'm trying to to push things in the as powerful as possible and taking the most game actions possible. Or specifically, like when you're looking at the new set, you're just like filter by how many things are free. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> are the free spells any good? Do I want to include them? Which is a much simpler way to curate a cube than trying to find effects you like and that kind of stuff. It really is. So there are two sort of easy ones. Investigator's Journal, uh, two mana, sorry, I should say zero mana, uh, <laughs> enters the battlefield with the number of suspect counters equal to the number, greatest number of creatures a player controls. Two mana to remove a counter from it to draw a card and you can also pay two mana and sacrifice and draw a card so assuming there is a creature in play this is a free divination and if there are creatures it is a free howling mine until eventually it's uh, draw three i guess on one turn no it's still you just draw two two cards on one turn so very solid card cards like uh maze mine tome and sunset pyramid have been really sought after because you can dump your hand pretty quickly so Sources of card advantage, card advantage have, have is actually very, relevant, very yeah. meaningful. Uh, so this is going to be a very powerful and highly drafted card. Similarly, I'm not quite as sure about this one, but pointed discussion. So it's uh, two and a black for a sorcery. You draw two cards, lose two life, make a blood token is another interesting one where you just generate some card advantage. It does cost a mana, which is a little steeper. But I, I'm curious about how much that like blood token to then cycle another card in your hand might be relevant. I'm interested in that too. We'll see how much that blood token is actually worth. I think historically, like, you are happy to play a divination or two. I say divination. They all become one mana draw twos. But to your point, anything that costs mana, I- I've told you before, when I draft this cube, it's like, is there anything I can do for free in this pack? And if there is, I'm not even looking at the cards I have to spend mana on unless they are exactly Monastery Mentor, Psy, one of the things that pays me off for doing all right. the free stuff. All right. So two more that I think are a little bit more challenging. What do you think about Demonic Bargain? Uh, so this is another sorcery, two and a black, exile the top 13 cards of your library, search your library for a card and put it into your hand, then shuffle. I've been really hesitant about Demonic Tutor just because I honestly don't love tutors and the combo decks are already a little bit overpowered. They're already a thing. They're but not struggling. Exiling 13 cards is a huge cost, especially when you're just churning through your deck super quickly with all kinds of effects and you can mill yourself pretty easily. Yeah, I don't like this card because I do think it's kind of a trap. I think you're going to mill yourself a lot more often than you're going to benefit from the power of this card being a one-mana tutor. Like, the reason to not play Demonic Tutor in my mind is that you just go and get an egg, and then it effectively is a mana-positive spell. It's just just another copy of an egg most of the time. And sometimes you have more mana, and you go and get your payoff, but most of the time you just get an egg, right? And it just now you have another copy of an egg in your deck, which you could never do with Demonic Bargain because you wouldn't exile half your remaining library or whatever just to go get an egg out of it to draw more cards so 
I don't know. I don't think it's that great. And I, I'm not particularly interested in tutors in this environment because there's so much cycling. You can find the cards you care about. Right. Like that's kind of the fun. You just part turn is... through your, it's, it's, that's a great way of putting it. That's the fun of the turbo cube is like, I got this big deck. Let's see how fast I can <laughs> put it in my graveyard into our hand and uh and do stuff with it. And just like getting a tutor to kind of like skirt around that is like, all right, great, cool, you did it. I don't know. Not that into it personally. Okay. I think that's a great discussion. Cool art. We're happy to exclude it. Great art. Love everything Sam Gway does. All right, one last card here for the Turbo Cube. What do you think about Cemetery Gatekeeper, which we've already talked about? Uh, but again, it you exile a card from red punisher a card, graveyard, yeah. and it punishes people for casting spells of that type. I like it. I think okay. it's cool. I think it's worth a mana here. It probably is just going to choose artifact all the time. I and definitely agree. almost always going to be an artifact in the graveyard. Even if you're on the play, you can put an artifact in your graveyard on turn one very, very often, and then just cast this thing and exile an artifact. And... I think it's cool that it's symmetrical. So it's going to be like, you get to maybe like do... We've talked before about how I think that a Staxi or Punisher deck could kind of work here. But one of the big problems is that if you get to go first, you just do all the stuff, dump your whole hand, and then at the end, play your Punisher or Stax cards. Right. And then your opponent just never gets to do all the stuff you did because that Punisher or Stax card exists. And here, this is not as extreme as something like a Null Rod or a... Damping Sphere, Thorn of Amethyst. Or Damping Sphere or Thorn of Amethyst or one of these other stacks cards that would like really kind of like break the whole conceit of the cube where you just do your whole thing, then you play Thorn and say, haha, now you know you don't get to play. Although those cards might be coming in in the near future as well. I would love to just try it. I mean, this is yeah. a perfect example of like, I think a lot of people, especially <laughs> very uh, overthinking cube designers that listen to this podcast might be like, oh, I got to be so careful to not break my environment. Break your environment. See how it goes. Play it. I think, Thorn's gonna, fix it. I think Thorn's probably going to be messed up, but I'm curious to see how it's messed up and see exactly what it leads to in the games. But this is like that, but it's not game ending. It's like, all right, now I took 12 damage on the first turn, which wasn't part of the plan, but, <laughs> but, but can I come back from that, I think, is, is an interesting line as opposed to being like, oh, you played Thorn. Now my whole hand of free spells that normally do nothing except for draw more cards. Now I'll cost one mana to do nothing but draw more cards, which is a non-starter, basically. Right. I mean, that is exactly my concern is that the the most dangerous thing about this environment is how advantaged you are being on the play. And so I don't want to Very further volatile. sort of... I, I don't want to make that asymmetry even more extreme that just if you're on the play, you dump your hand and then you, you know finished with Thalia or something and your opponents just kind of shut out of the game. And I think this could definitely fall into that territory where you cycle a bunch of eggs and all that kind of stuff, exile an artifact, and then your opponent's looking at a hand where they're going to legitimately take 12 damage before they start doing anything, and then they're still getting attacked by a 2-1 first striker. So I think it's worth trying, but I, I could see this being another, just another piece that's slightly pushing the cube more in that direction. You know what I would take in the Turbo Cube above any egg, any egg ever printed, is power play. The conspiracy of it says, if you're not going first, you get to go first. I said that this is a cube where I'm trying to play the most powerful cards to some degree. That is way off the table. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be, Absolutely not. That would be pretty punishing. All right, I have one more weird dumb cube. I will have, uh, I'll put a sensor beep earlier over my allusion to this cube. So people have wondered what that beep was. <laughs> And now we're getting the beep spoiled. So a little while ago, I actually wrote into Good Luck High Five, another magic podcast that we love. If you haven't already been listening to them, 
you should go do that. Don't listen to this podcast. Uh, do both. Listen to ours too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I asked them what kind of cubes they would be interested in, and I forget if it was Megan or Maria, but one of them suggested a cube with all the alt wind conditions. And I said, that's cool. No one should build that. That's going to be horrible. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm, the one seed is planted. It's it's really a problem. So I did design this cube. Uh, I'm calling it the Battle of Wits cube. And I tried to get every single alt win condition into the list. Although Battle of Wits turned out to be problematic. So it didn't actually make it into the list. Why was it problematic? Because you have to have so many basic lands. This is what this episode <laughs> is about now. Now this episode is about the battle. You could make the Battle of Wits deck work. You just also have to have the cards that... You know, let you exile a bunch of lands from your library. Right. Wait, does so, Battle so, of Wits only work when it's in play and you have that many cards? Correct. So it you would do be have hard. to have more than 200 cards. Still, in your, still, my point is still, you can't like have the, I thought for some reason in my head, I had a shortcut to like a companion text. Like as long as you started the game <laughs> with 300 cards <laughs> in your library, Battle of Wits says you win the game, but they still have to be in your library when it's on the battlefield, yes. which means you can't like consultation yourself to find your Battle of Wits and then play it. So the, the challenge is just getting enough support for every single alt-win condition in the same set of 360, 384 cards so that you can theoretically actually play these. None of them are huge traps. And then th- it actually turned out to be a really interesting challenge just to sort of try and like reconstruct magic. So the, the rules tweak is that you don't lose the game for running out of life. Uh, you can't pay life oh like you, you still did, you did have, you did change that we do need to have that because otherwise you can just kill people that's not fair <laughs> that, you can just attack people to death <laughs> is that not fair yeah that's not fair i at would all. have assumed it'd be really really <laughs> hard in the alternate win condition cube to just attack people to death why not let people do it if they can i mean you can try it is interesting <laughs> that life totals do still matter for a lot of the win conditions right, for and for transcendence or whatever alternate costs that pay life so it, it turned out to be a really interesting design challenge where it's like well how do we actually re- restore the interactivity when these payoffs these like ways to end the game don't interact on no- normal terms so i went pretty deep on it the list is really really tight and unfortunately now i do have to add faithbound judge uh my hands are tied i'm obligated to add it in it is one white white for a 4-4 defender flying vigilance at the beginning of your do you have to read this whole card no the backside says you win the game in three <laughs> turns after you disturb it for seven exactly mana. that's exactly what it says uh so I, I don't know what i'm gonna cut it's gonna be really challenging everything is really tight and and they're very intentionally at this point all right well uh listeners i'm gonna put the link to anthony's alternate win condition cube in the show notes and everybody send him your cuts for that cube oh that'd be great I'll make you give you a nice big fat list. There's nothing cube designers love more than telling people they should cut from their cubes. So uh, do it for Anthony's alternate win condition cube. I do think this cube was a really interesting exercise and uh, just like thought, not a thought challenge, just, just a regular challenge. It was really hard a to puzzle. design something that felt meaningful, a puzzle. So I don't think anyone should play this cube. I don't think anyone should build a cube, but I do like sort of planting this flag way, way out in the field just to say, look how like huge and weird we can get with cube design and how much space there is in the much more reasonable end of the spectrum. I think we should play it once. All right. Got to proxy the whole thing up. We're not buying all those freaking cards. It's not going to happen. You say that. Is that it for your cubes, Anthony? That is it for my cubes. I'm going to save our more, listeners but... from. I'm going to save our listeners from talking about the combat trick mini cube. Uh, there are a couple things I'm going to add from this set. The main important one is the two mana blue flyer that just draws a card whenever you target it with a spell. That's a slam dunk in that cube. It will be in there for all time. And I think I'm going to add a called Epiphany as a discard outlet for the degenerate micro cube, which also can serve as a rare win condition. But leave that out. I did save Anthony my number one card from Crimson Val. Didn't even mention it in my in my top ten. The number one card above all else from the set, and that is a braid. Just because I love a braid, and I'm excited to have art that I don't 
hate. I've always found the older braid art to be so boring and I mean, I guess it's some like pyramid that's getting blown away in the wind, but it's like, no, the composition's boring, the color's boring, and the new braid art, does it have a lot to do with the braiding? I don't know. You could argue not, but it sure as heck looks cool. It's got this big like phoenix bird in the background and this geometric shape and this really stark silhouetted profile. I'm uh, very into the new art. So that's actually truly the card I'm most excited about from this set is a foil new art of braid. I'm excited to make that exact same strict upgrade uh, in my cube as well. I also really like, I think these are pretty strict upgrades on syncopate and valor stance as well. Ooh, I don't know about syncopate. The Teferi syncopate is pretty chill, but I do agree on Valorous stance. The The colors on the new Valorous stance are quite nice. Love that composition. Love those colors. Old ones were also dark, very dark and dingy. Thus concludes part two of our Crimson Val and Crimson Val Commander set review. All the cards we are going to add to our respective cubes. This is the first time doing an episode like this. I hope this was enlightening and useful to you. If maybe your cubes are somewhat similar to ours, even if not, I hope hearing our takes on these cards in specific environments might help you process how other cards might work in your environment. And the last part of this set review is, of course, going to be your opinion. So we are collecting our answers for the community set review, which means we have a survey up at luckypaper.co slash survey slash BOW. It's got all the Crimson Val cards, all the Crimson Val Commander cards all in one place. You can rate them. Tell us what you think about them, how excited you are about them in your own cube lists. We're also accepting voice memo hot takes. If you want to have your opinion enshrined forever on an episode of Lucky Paper Radio, take out your phone, record a little audio clip of you sharing your opinion about a card, and we will add it into our community episode. Send those to mail at luckypaper.co. So we didn't try and cover the whole set by any stretch of the imagination. Well, we did cover the whole set for our cubes. But not for all, all cubes. And, no, just and for our cubes. So whatever you think that we've missed and you want us to talk about in the next set review set where we're going to be talking about the community response, make sure you go fill out the survey. And if you've already updated your cube on Cube Cobra, if you just put in the link, it'll automatically import all those cards and you can choose your ratings. Because Anthony is a whispering wizard of web development. Mm. A whispering web wizard. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> you're whispering because of how much I have to turn the input up on your mic, and you're a wizard because of how good you make that survey to fill out for people. Yeah, I mean, actually, truthfully, what that survey is, is uh, you telling us to talk about a card on the community response episode of our set review. So if you want to talk about a card, your favorite card, include it in your survey and also include a little note or a voice memo. If you include a voice memo, we're definitely going to talk about your card. If you just want to include a note in the comment section, uh, we'll also be reading those comments and that might also influence what we talk about on the show. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. Magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This podcast is produced by Speaking into Microphones in Anthony's Basement. Thanks for talking about magic cards with me, Anthony. Anytime. Anytime.